Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Jimmy Chen, founder and CEO at Propel. Thank you for joining us today, Jimmy. So, hi, um, Theo. <laughs> hi. Um, you have a few years in the tech industry, including LinkedIn and, and Facebook, um, before you started Propel in 2014, which is right around when, when we first met. Um, and we just chat about that. Time flies. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and give our audience an overview of Propel and what has transpired the last six years? Yeah, so um, thank you again for having me today. Uh, you know, the thing that led me to Propel was really working in Silicon Valley at consumer tech startups um, that were the industry leaders around building software that people like to use. And uh, realizing that there was this massive opportunity to take those same skills, that same playbook, and apply it towards some of the challenges that people who are struggling financially face every day. Um, the belief that I had in 2014 when I started Propel um, is that people solve the problems that they understand. And by and large, people in Silicon Valley, the people who have the skills and the experience to build consumer technology, uh, generally haven't had that life experience or are not as familiar with that life experience. And so as a result, um, people who work at tech startups or, or even large tech companies like Facebook and LinkedIn um, just didn't have as much context about people that were struggling financially in the United States and so weren't building technology to solve those problems. So I started Propel in 2014 through a fellowship at the Robin Hood Foundation called Blue Ridge Labs. It was focused on helping new tech entrepreneurs identify and prototype challenges based in the everyday lives of low-income Americans. Um, you know, the thing that I really, uh, really honed in on during the fellowship program in 2014 was the food stamp program, which is also known as SNAP, uh, used by about 40 million Americans to put food on the table is one of the most important parts of our social safety net in the United States. And I found that the software experience of it, like purely from a consumer experience point of view, just didn't feel consistent with what people expect from uh, modern experiences. And so more specifically within the food stamp program, which again is also known as the SNAP program, um, the thing that we ended up honing in on is the fact that every one of the 40 million people who gets their food stamp benefits on an EBT card has to call it 1-800 number on the back of the card so they can check their balance. And that's because if you go grocery shopping and you don't know your balance, you can get into this really embarrassing experience at the point of sale where the cashier might say you, might not, you don't have enough money on the card to purchase the groceries that you're trying to buy. Um, and so people call this 1-800 number all the time to be able to check the balance. So we asked uh, pretty naively at the start of the company, why isn't there a mobile banking app for this card? Right? The way that this works in the private sector is that if you have a debit card from a bank, there's a free mobile banking app that lets you see your balance and your transactions. There's a whole world of fintechs out there that help you to save money and transfer money and all these different types of things. Like, why doesn't that exist for this cash-like thing, uh, which is the food stamp program, which serves 40 million Americans and provides about $70 billion in benefits each year? Um, and so we couldn't find a good reason, and so we built it. Uh, the product that we built was essentially like a mobile banking app for the food stamp program. It aimed to replace that 1-800 number with a free smartphone app that lets anybody uh, see their balance, transaction history, and get a variety of different tools, um, all like through a, a, a modern smartphone interface, which seems like kind of table stakes, but uh, for a lot of our users was a big deal. Uh, it was, 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 uh, felt like a modernization of the program and the ability to add more dignity to this kind of everyday experience of finding out how much I can buy in food. 
Um, the app is the Fresh EBT app, and we ended up launching it right in the early days of 2016. Uh, so now it's been out for about four and a half years. Um, and I think one of the things we found with Fresh EBT um, is that we really think of the need to check your EBT balance as a hook towards greater financial health. That the need to manage your EBT card and to know your balance is the reason why people will download the app and a reason why people open the app about once every two days throughout um, the course of a calendar month. But at the end of the day, what we really care about is not just providing the EBT information, but putting that person on a path and giving them tools to improve their greater financial health. And for us, that means things like helping our users to save money. Um, it means you know, allowing our users to clip a grocery coupon and use it from inside the app. It means helping our users identify what other parts of the safety net they're qualified for but not currently enrolled in in Fresh EBT. And it also means uh, helping our users to find different ways they can earn more income through the app, whether that's um, picking up a shift, whether that's finding a seasonal job, whether that's finding a full-time job or a training program. Those are also all, um, you know, all features and, and pieces of content that we show inside Fresh EBT. And so what, we, what we've really transformed the app into over the years is this idea of using the fact that every low-income American needs to do this very practical transaction of checking their EBT balance and turning that into more of a platform play where we can help those uh, those Americans address a variety of different financial and social challenges in their life. So one of the things that you put in your LinkedIn profile is that uh, Propel builds software that helps people in financial need get back on their feet. And it sounds like you're doing that today. Um, everybody deserves that safety net. And well, it doesn't seem like the industry is actually doing that much to help. Like, why aren't there, you know, a hundred different propels with different social services embedded so that people can access that data like mobile banking? Why aren't we doing more to help people that are in need? Um, you know, it's a good question. And in many ways, it is kind of the, 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 the central question um, for this, this notion of who's going to bank the underbanked, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. I think to me, there are, uh, there, there are really two issues that are the, 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 the kind of two largest reasons why that's the case. Um, the first is lack of contacts from people who start fintech companies and who work in financial services. And the second is, uh, in many cases, short-sightedness around the financial incentives. So um, I'll, take, I'll, I'll tackle those uh, one by one. On, on the first one, this is kind of what I was referring to earlier about people solve the problems that they understand. And the reality of uh, you know, the startup ecosystem and the financial services industry, especially in the United States, is that people who have the means to start a new organization or people who have the means to go join a, a major bank and start a new initiative uh, generally come from a certain set of backgrounds. And that's not representative of everybody in the United States. In fact, like it's, you know, it's, but, you know, for, for tech in particular, um, it's even more stark, right? It, it, the tech industry is biased towards uh, towards men. It's biased towards um, you know people that are not uh, people of color. It's biased towards people who live on the coasts. It's biased towards people who grew up wealthy. Um, and as a result, those groups of demographics don't have as much context about the issue. Like I would I would bet that most people in consumer tech don't know a lot about the experience of checking the balance on an EBT card to buy food on food stamps. Um, and so because that, that experience is foreign to them, um, it's just it's hard to solve a problem that you don't really understand. Um, 
And, uh, like, you know, to me, that really is, like, uh, the biggest barrier. I, I think a lot of, uh, uh, I think a lot more people would would uh, understand and care about these problems if they just knew the daily experience that low income Americans face. But I think like getting true empathy is hard, and so it ends up being a real barrier to innovation and to people um, being able to do real work in this in this area. I, I mean, f- for me personally. Um, you know, my personal background is that I, I grew up in a loving and supportive family that also had a variety of, of different financial shocks, um, where we grew up sort of in between uh, middle class and lower class, depending on the particular year, depending on my father's employment situation. Um, I was fortunate to go to Stanford on a financial needs scholarship and then started my career in Silicon Valley after that. But I think, uh, you know, that the, the, the majority of my peers uh, at Stanford and in Silicon Valley did not come from that background and came from a very different type of background that, um, that, that put them farther away from the lived experiences of, you know, the 40 million Americans that are struggling to put food on the table. Um, on the other point about financial incentive, that's maybe like an even more obvious reason why people in financial services don't uh, build inclusive products or aren't really focused on helping people in need because they believe that that's the, the domain of charity and government, that uh, for-profits um, don't have much of a role to play because from a strictly fiscal perspective, like low-income people have less money, and so how are you going to get them to pay you for stuff, right? Um, and a lot of the models that are, are, are common um, in financial services, whether it's interchange or fees or credit, um, that those are challenging when people have less money in their bank accounts and have, have lower credit scores and less ability to repay and so on. Um, I don't think there's a, there's a silver bullet to this question, and I, I don't deny the, like, basic economics of it. But my perspective with Propel, and the reason why we're a for-profit company that is funded by a variety of venture capital investors like Andreessen Horowitz and Kleiner Perkins, who are really focused on the business returns of a company as ours, is that I think this group has been so underrepresented and so underappreciated for so long that actually there's 40 million Americans who are dealing with a ton of pain on a day-to-day basis, and they spend lots of money. Right. It costs people who are low income in the United States $100 billion um, to, to, to purchase and use financial services that are not a good fit for them. Right. These are people who uh, pay overdraft fees and buy prepaid cards off the shelf and use a check casher. Like these are all, like, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the first one to identify these challenges, but I think there's just uh, a misnomer that because low income people just don't have a lot of money that there's no way to build a profitable business that serves them. And I think that's just false when you look at the amount of money that these folks are already spending on services that aren't really meeting their needs and the amount of pain that they feel on a day-to-day basis. Um, and also just how few, how few people are working on this problem and how little competition there actually is. I can't agree more. I think that's one of the things that Brian and I always talk about. Um, and one of the reasons why we started this company is the belief that there is so much more that we need to do and can do as an industry. Um, and with the reasons that you just say, say whether or not either because they are just, they don't have the context of what can be done or they just have a different assumption or presumption of, of how things are, that should not prevent us from doing more. And kudos to you for that. And along with that line, um, another interesting topic is Project 100. Now, recently, we just had a guest on our show, Greg, 
our dear friend um, who, who said this thing, and, and, and I think a lot of people resonate with, is fintech is politics. So when we think about um, services that we provide to people, you know, for example, along the topic of UBI, that's fairly contentious, but I don't think anyone can argue, especially with this current time, that there are people that are struggling and they need cash, period. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Project 100, how that came about and that next milestone, because now that we've heard you have reached your initial goal and reached it early. Yeah, so Project 100 is a partnership between Propel, the Give Directly team, and Stand for Children, uh, the latter two being nonprofits that are really focused on, um, on cash transfers throughout the world and education and, and, and rights for, for, for children, uh, respectively. Um, the project came about because in the early days of the COVID pandemic in the United States, this was in the middle of March, um, it just became quite clear to us because we at Propel spend every day focused on low-income Americans and on people that are struggling financially. It became very clear to us that our users were going to bear the brunt of the financial consequences of the epidemic, right? Uh, our users are disproportionately the ones who are employed in frontline service industries. Our users are the people who are not going to be able to work from home. Our users are the people who, um, uh, who are going to be laid off uh, first, you know, in, in, in their jobs as restaurants close down and hotels close down and so on. Um, and so, you know, for us, what we saw like looming was, and this is sort of uh, outside of the government uh, response in the United States, what we saw looming was that there was going to be a major financial challenge that was unprecedented faced by people who were very low income in the United States. And so we asked ourselves, like, what, what can we do to help alleviate a small part of that? Um, and we decided the answer was to keep it simple, right? The answer was to give uh, people who are struggling financially some cash. Um, and we, in particular, uh, decided cash was the right answer instead of, you know, providing food or providing some kind of, of, of a good or a service because at the end of the day, we respect um, people who are low income and believe that, that, that providing them the optionality, being able to spend that money on rent or on, on cleaning supplies or on food or whatever they needed, was the ultimate form of respect, being able to say that we respect you enough that you can make the decision of how you want to spend this money. Um, so that's where the Give Directly and Stanford Children partnerships came in, is, is that, uh, you know, sort of what we brought to the table at Propel was an understanding of this consumer and the ability to reach this consumer. So we've got um, more than 3 million people who get food stamp benefits in the United States who use the Fresh EBT app regularly. We have a deeply trusted relationship to those folks. And so we can identify who the people are that are in financial need. We can distribute this to them. We can, we can say, hey, um, you know, we have that, we, we are, um, you, you are validated as somebody who is currently using the American Safety Net and is, is likely in financial need, um, and we can reach that person. Now, the, the challenge, of course, is like, where does the capital come from? And, 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 and how is that going to work? And that's where the Give Directly and Stanford Children teams have really mobilized around fundraising. We created a public campaign called Project 100, which is a, um, it's an effort to raise $100 million to be able to give $1,000 cash grants to 100,000 people who are using the Fresh EBT app. So um, we believe that this is the largest uh, non-government cash transfer program in the United States and the largest uh, non-government cash transfer program as a response to the COVID pandemic over the last few months. Um, and, 
you know, we launched that in the middle of April, uh, and fast forward to now, it's the middle of July, and we've successfully hit our goal. So we distributed um, 100,000 of these cash grants to people who use Fresh EBT. They received $1,000 each that has no strings attached. It's not a loan. They don't have to pay it back. Um, we heard from our, our, our users that they spent the money disproportionately on rent, uh, cleaning supplies, and food. Um, there was, you know, we uh, provided people who received this cash grant the ability um, to, to shoot a video of themselves saying what it meant for them to receive this money and, and what kind of situation they were in. And we got just some really, really heartfelt stories and responses about how close people have been to the edge and how this money came in at just the right time and how it's so easy to access the money and how important that, that was. Um, we actually publicized a, a, um, a variety of those videos and uploaded them on project100.us. That's project um, with 100 as numbers.us. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're, we were excited to be able to declare this a success thanks to the generosity of a, of, of a variety of funders across the United States and across the world who recognized in this unique moment that direct cash transfers um, and being able to just put money in the hands of people that were in financial need was the right answer um, in a moment of crisis. But the sad truth is that the, uh, the pandemic continues to rage on in the United States and the economic impact is not over. Um, and so we've extended Project 100. We've changed the name to Project 100 Plus and uh, are really just focused on continuing to scale this effort because we know that there are more low-income Americans who are struggling financially, who, um, you know, these are folks for whom $1,000 can make the difference between staying in their home or being evicted. These are folks for whom $1,000 can make the difference between, you know, being able to, to buy a device for their children that allows them to take a class online. Um, and so we are continuing onward with the, uh, the effort. We announced pretty recently that we raised another $10 million through the generosity of the Schusterman Foundation uh, to kickstart the effort of Project 100 Plus um, and are just excited about continuing to be able to serve uh, people who are struggling financially in this really unusual time in the United States. That, that's an amazing progress with this program, and I hope it can continue to draw money in to help the people in need. Um, we see that, you know, roughly now one in five workers, about 30 million people are collecting unemployment, and we're experiencing the first increase in new jobless filings since early on in the pandemic. It might get worse before it gets better. It's certainly going to get worse. Um, so what are the things, you know, should, should industry be doing? What are the things should, should the government be doing to help with programs like yours? Well, um, you know, part of the, the secondary uh, motivation for Project 100, it's not the primary motivation, but kind of the secondary one is to demonstrate that, uh, that using FinTech and using the technology and tools of the modern financial services sector, uh, we can do really effective cash transfer programs at large scale, right? And I recognize this, that even though we were able to distribute $100 million, that's still quite a bit smaller than the type of scale that the federal government has to operate on when it comes to cash transfer programs and the economic impact payments. Um, but, but still, the, 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 I think the point stands that, that, you know, if we can stand up and operate a program 
stuff like this in 60 days uh, with with very little uh, lossiness, no fraud, all those types of things, and, and a really great kind of uh, customer experience. But that's exactly um, how the government ought to think about um, things like cash transfer programs and things like providing aid to those who are in need in the United States. Um, from a, a, a policy standpoint, I mean, I think we see very clearly that the financial need uh, faced by low-income Americans is not abating, and so policies like the pandemic EBT program, policies like, um, you know, providing everyone who receives uh, benefits through the unemployment program an extra $600 per week, those have been hugely impactful, and we want those to continue for as long as, 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 as we're able to, to make those happen. Um, and so I think, by and large, the government has a huge role to play, as the single biggest role, obviously, um, to play in helping us get through the pandemic. Um, in terms of the industry, I think I've been really heartened to see a variety of industry players, large and small, in financial services really step up and say, hey, there's a role for fintech here. You know, there's a role for fintech in, um, you know, in, in providing payment rails or in, you know, just, just really thinking about the specific needs of people who are struggling financially using the unemployment program at this particular moment. And I, I, I actually, like, uh, there is a very small silver lining to this crisis uh, that actually relates directly back to the point that I made previously about people solve the problems that they understand. When a major economic shock like this happens, uh, you know, now a huge percentage of the United States has experience with the unemployment program. And I don't uh, at all mean to suggest that that's a positive thing, but I think, you know, the number, the, 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 uh, the you know, people who have used unemployment over the last few months range across industries, across uh, different types of seniority, people in tech have, um, have felt that financial pain. And so my, my hope is that that can spark a new wave of innovation and creation um, of, of, oh, now I understand how painful and dehumanizing it is to use the social safety net. Uh, can I make that better? And I think that's, that's like one way that we can collectively move forward. I hope that that can also spur more empathy um, because there is so much bias, I think, in our society, especially in the United States, um, where we view different social class, where we view people that um, might be unemployed or in financial distress, and how I, I feel like a lot of times there will be people who look down upon them. There was one word that, that you said previously that struck with me, the word respect. Um, and I think that's missing in, in how we view that demographics. And, and I hope if we look back and if there's anything we can learn and gain from this is, is that we need to respect people more. Um, so looking back, um, like we mentioned earlier, it's been six years since you founded the company. Knowing what you know now and having gone through what you've gone through, um, and I want to ask this on behalf of you know, startup founders who will be listening, what would you have done differently? Um, or if there's anything that you would like to do um, that you haven't been able to do, what would you do? Well, um, you know, it, it's like you mentioned, I've been running the company for, for six years now and have certainly made my share of mistakes. Um, so it's hard to know even where to start on this. Um, I learned a lot. I mean, the Propel is my first startup. I came from the larger software company world and so had a lot to learn in the early days in particular and still do today about how to run a company. 
um, about how to manage a team, about how to build a, a product and scale it to, to where it is now, and, and how, to build a, uh, how to create a business from scratch. You know, one of the things that I, um, I learned through painful trial and error um, was how to raise money from investors running the kind of business that we run, which is candidly a little different than most pitches that I think for-profit uh, VC investors tend to hear. Um, you know, my experience during that was pretty naively just wandering into VC offices in the first year or two of Propel, um, seeing my peers, uh, my peers being, you know, people who are also product managers at Facebook or also computer science grads at Stanford, uh, be able to wander into VC offices and, and, and walk out with a $5 million check um, and, and thinking like, well, maybe I'll try that. Um, and, and just not, not fully realizing um, how... Uh, how radical it was going to seem that I was a first-time entrepreneur trying to pitch a food stamp software company that was going to be massively profitable um, and also have this massive social impact. And I think I, I was a little naive in, in not realizing how that was going to come across, especially for folks who, who frankly, like, probably didn't have a lot of personal experience with the safety net and didn't really personally understand the challenges that they faced. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I think I would do differently today uh, is just realize that like for a company like mine where we're solving a very specific type of problem, um, there are certain people that are just not going to join that journey. And I'm not saying those are bad people, not at all. It's just that those, those are people who maybe don't understand these types of challenges because either they haven't had that personal experience or uh, that's just sort of not the way that they view the world, and that that's okay. Like we're not, we're not for everybody, right? Um, not everyone's going to be an investor in Propel. Not everyone's going to be an employee at Propel. Um, and that we should be comfortable about that and instead focus on finding the people who do see the world the way that I see it, people who do believe that there is a massive opportunity to create both a huge uh, profit and business opportunity and to execute this social mission of building a user-friendly safety net that helps people that are struggling financially to get back on the feet, and that those aren't at odds. Actually doing this the right way allows those to be mutually reinforcing. Um, and that, that that's like uh, I, I hope it's not as radical as it used to be when I started the company, but that's the, the, the thing that not everyone believes in and that we have to just be okay with that. And, and given the state of, you know, kind of where we are in the pandemic and how many people are sort of new to experiencing, um, you know, issues with food and not being able to pay rent. And I just read a stat yesterday that almost a third of mortgages are not being paid in the current month. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more people that are going to experience the need for that social safety net. So given that state of the economy and given that we're likely to have several years of a downturn related to the pandemic, what are your plans in the next three to five years for Propel? monthly active users. Now we're, we're pretty well over 3 million uh, monthly active users and continuing to grow rapidly. Um, those folks are using the app a lot more often. So now people are coming back to the app frequently. Um, and I think, you know, what we've seen is that, like, uh, you know, one of the after effects of us building this product and, and trying to optimize for user value on a day-in and day-out basis over the last four years is that people turn to us in times of crisis. And uh, this is not a good thing, but more people are in crisis now than they have been before. Um, and so we feel the responsibility to keep executing on our mission and to keep trying to address some of these challenges that people face. Project 100 is a good example of our willingness to do things that are a little bit non-traditional, just like outside the box, 
um, that can really benefit people who, who use our products. Um, over the next three to five years, I think, uh, you know, what I'm really excited about is um, having a deeper impact on the areas of our users' lives that are outside of traditional financial services. So this is actually like the slowest type of uh, startup change or pivot uh, that you may have seen. Um, you know, I started the company as a, a GovTech play. We really focused on the food stamp program, on the user experience of the government program, and so we were a government tech platform. Um, but sometime around, I don't know if it was 2016 or so, we started to realize that ultimately we're a fintech company. And it's because um, what we really care about at the end of the day are the finances of the consumer that we serve. Like we're not trying to change the government per se. We just really want to help somebody who's struggling financially, who's using the safety net to marshal all the resources that she has at her disposal um, to make things better. And that means that we are, we are very excited about doing things that are outside of the government sector, right? Um, that it, it just so happens that the food stamp program um, is a government program and also is a huge financial lever for a lot of low-income Americans, but it's not the only one. So when we look into the financial lives of, uh, of the, the 100 million Americans that are making under $40,000 a year, you know, that is really our, next, our focus in the next three to five years is building a variety of products and tools that allow us to address those challenges. And I think um, the model that we've built with Fresh EBT serving people who get food stamp benefits is the one that we're going to continue, which is the ability to build a deep amount of trust to get really low kind of uh, cost of acquisition as people onboard on the platform because we're solving a real need that they have. And to be able to do that across not just uh, a government program like the food stamp program, but across a variety of other different uh, financial services categories. I can't wait to see um, what's next. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear about it. Um, very soon and uh, best of luck and kudos again to what you guys have done with Project 100 and more. Um, we need more people like you. Um, so thank you, Jimmy. And uh, thank you everyone for joining us. <laughs> I, we, we are very excited and you know, you know that deep down we are, we are cheering for you. So, um, and uh, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of One Vision. <laughs>